Bernice Bobs Her Hair, Sections 1 through 3. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 221, Bob, Bob, Bobbin' Along. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can see the entire Knitting Out Loud catalog by visiting www.knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the latest issue, which is lovely, at www.knitcircus.com. I have had a little break. I've had a little research time, a little time to listen and listen and listen and listen. And um, and I have a lot of good stuff for you. Because, you know, uh, time waits for no man. Or no, it's time, time and tide wait for no man. Something like that. I think it's from Julius Caesar. Anywho, uh, I have been collecting all sorts of stuff to share with you. Some of it is really quite interesting. So let's see, I'm going to cruise through um, all of these links and little tidbits for you pretty quickly because I do want to get on to F. Scott Fitzgerald and Bernice Bob's her hair. If you are new to the podcast and just joining us on Bernice, uh, this is pretty much the way the show works. I share some links or some crafty information or book reviews or whatever has been sent in or that I've discovered that I think the audience would be interested in. And then I get on to explaining what's coming up in the next chapter, or in this case, sections of a short story or a novel. Right now we're doing Bernice Bob's Her Hair in September 2011. We will be starting Dracula, and that will coincide with a Dracula knit-along based on the Wilhelmina Shawlette from the book, What Would Madame Defarge Knit? And I'm very excited about that. We have a lot of knit-alongs scheduled now, but the, the Dracula Shawlette will be our first foray into that world. I'm very excited about that. Speaking of uh, Madame Defarge, one of the links I wanted to share with you is on the Craftlet Facebook page, I have embedded video of all of the patterns from What Would Madame Defarge Knits. So if you've been um, you know, frustrated or trying to find all of the pictures for patterns in the book in one localized area, there are now three videos, one for each section of the book. And those are loaded both on Facebook, but also on YouTube. And, um, and I, think, I think they're pretty easy to search for. What Would Madame Defarge Knits will definitely get you that link. And, uh, and then you can see not only pictures of all of the, the gorgeous knitting that went on in the making of that book, but also pictures of the designers, which I thought was kind of fun. And, uh, and you'll see links to their blogs or you'll see their Ravelry names so you can find them. And, uh, and that's, all, that's all exciting stuff. So those links are in the show notes and will take you to either the Facebook page where you can join. It's not exclusive or anything like that. Everybody's welcome. Or you can just go to YouTube and I'll have links for you for that as well. I also found, I found a link from Instructables. I love Instructables. 
that I get their weekly kind of digest and they always have the strangest, most clever, just most bizarre things <laughs> with instructions on how to make them. And this this week they had one that I just had to pass on to you. Homemade Milano cookies. Now, I haven't tried this recipe, and obviously I will have to deglutenize it, but I'll tell you that the thing, I can walk away from donuts, I can walk away from anything that has gluten in it without a second look. But the, the thing in the grocery store that I keep seeing and going, oh, yeah, it's mint Milano cookies. I don't know why they tempt me so, but it's almost worth a migraine to taste that taste and to get that texture again. So I'm very hopeful because the Milano cookie picture looked just like Milano cookies. So maybe, you know, maybe I'll be able to figure out how to do it and, and make it uh, gluten-free. And, uh, and if you make the recipe, let us know on the show notes in the comment section how it went for you, whether it's worth it or not. Um, no affiliation, yada, yada. I just thought it looked awfully tempting and that I would pass that on to you. I also found, uh, or my husband actually sent me a very funny link. If you aren't familiar with McSweeney's, let's see, I don't actually know how to explain McSweeney's to you. Uh, McSweeney's is, there's a storefront, or there was, I don't know, I haven't looked in the last six or seven years. But when I lived in Brooklyn on 7th Avenue in Park Slope, down towards Windsor Terrace, there was a McSweeney storefront, unmarked, just a, a little door on the, what was it, east side of the street, I guess. And it was the strangest place. You know the judge in Alice in Wonderland, how like the judge's chair, the, the, the bench looks way too tall and everybody else is below? Well, the person who's kind of guarding the shop in McSweeney's was way up high on a, on a bench that was uh, way taller than a normal shop would have because they weren't selling anything. It was, well, I guess they were probably selling their books, but it was really this little museum of weird. And it was kind of like an apothecary shop and you'd open drawers and instead of there being, you know, herbs or toothpaste or whatever, there were these little art installations in, in the boxes. And I remember one distinctly was a snowscape scene with a little pond and a little house and penguins and nuns, little tiny ones, you know, maybe a quarter inch to a half inch tall, um, ice skating on the pond. And that was it. It was just, that was a drawer. So McSweeney's, what I'm saying is McSweeney's is odd. And it's odd in the most wonderful kind of way. It's, they, they publish really smart writing, but it's also really odd writing. Not, not entirely goofy, although some of it is, and not entirely dry and ironic and arch, although some of it is. But mostly it's just smart and funny. So what I have a link to is McSweeney's take on Huck Finn, if there were notes going back and forth between producers who were readying Huck Finn for television. And I'll just let that sink in. All the attendant horrors that could happen, they happen. It's very funny. And it's written like a script. It's an, it's an easy and quick read. So I've got that for you. And then on the not so funny side, we have a listener 
Clara Castellar, who lives in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And going back to, going back a ways, to when I, I brought up that section from the book Switch on how the high school students had figured out how to save their town by just getting everybody to spend $40 more a week in town instead of spending that $40 at the big box stores. And they totally rescued their town doing it. Um, uh, Clara sent this in shortly thereafter. And um, it's horrible what's happened to her. She had these 25-year-old pine trees that she had planted on her property for a windbreak. And also because the area is supposed to be a, a uh, avian sanctuary uh, preserve because it's one of the stops that birds take when they're flying south for the winter and then north for the spring and summer and the city just showed up and chopped down her trees and you know no recourse this is there's been a lot of this kind of weird eminent domain stuff going on there was a big case what in Connecticut or Massachusetts not too long ago. Anyway, this is the first time that this is this kind of thing has happened to a listener. And it connects, I think her point was that it connects with um, what we were talking about before about saving the community by doing little things, that it doesn't take much um, action on our parts to save our communities and keep them communal, you know, people helping people kind of thing. And here she is in a situation where the town council was just not interested. And it was clearly very sad and upsetting to her. And um, so she has, she has links to her, she has a little video that she did and then she has links to her blog and the, the other uh, repercussions of what's happened to her. So I've linked to that from the show notes as well because that was, that was very sad. I don't like, I don't like it when people cut down trees, especially without letting you know beforehand. We had the same thing happen in Tucson, but we actually knew that there was an easement there. And um, it was actually in our zoning paperwork. So we, we knew, but we did lose two enormous shade trees, which you can imagine in Tucson, Arizona is a big deal need the shade trees and I did go out and talk to the guys and say you know is there any way you can do this by just lopping off a bunch of the branches and leaving the tree and um, once I saw the construction that they were actually doing it made sense why they couldn't uh, but they were very nice to me about it and I was very nice to them because they're just doing their job but um, but those links are available to you at the show notes at craftlit.com I also wanted to let you know on the knitting side of things, I found, I'm looking for the date on it. It says display until October 31st. Well, that doesn't help. Oh, fall 2011. The magazine's name is Love of Knitting. It has some beautiful, I can't believe that's knitted. There's a white pillow on a kind of an orangish basket weave. Afghan on the front. Anyway, uh, the reason this one caught my eye is because one of the headings on the cover is Knit to Fit the Perfect Skirt. You may recall that a few episodes ago I was looking for a really good A-line skirt and Rachel, who is like the season, that's her Ravelry name on, on Ravelry, um, she actually gifted me very sweetly the Bell Curve Skirt 
which, if you haven't looked at, is a gorgeous pattern by Kira, Kira, Kira something designs. And, uh, and so I'm very excited about that. And now I'm even more excited because this not only has a pattern, this magazine, um, Love of Knitting, not only has a pattern for a skirt, but it does go into the planning and sizing and shaping and how to make invisible increases in a ribbed skirt and all that kind of stuff. So that, I thought, might well be useful for you as well as for me. So that is a bit of knittingness. I'm almost done with the big secret finish sweater for the upcoming book from Voyager Press. The sock book is out and getting really lovely reviews and uh, and I'm very excited about that because there are some some really gorgeous socks in there. Gretchen Funk, who is actually a designer in What Would Madame Defarge Knit as well, has a pair of Peruvian socks in the sock knitting from around the world book and those are gorgeous as well. She's responsible for the Princess Languideer cowl in Madame Defarge and the Jekyll and Hyde hooded sweater, which is really quite something and rather ingenious, I think. These days I, I seem to be all about clever construction. Every time I see a pattern that has clever construction, I'm going, oh, look at that. So I'm, I'm getting sucked in by that, I think. And on that note, if you are interested in submitting a pattern for What Would Madame Defarge Knit Volume 2, and that means you would be responsible for the, the pattern and knitting it, and eventually writing an essay on how a particular character from a work of classic fiction inspired you to create the knitted or crocheted article that you created, um, I've decided because of Thanksgiving and Christmas and just craziness in general, the due date for final patterns, et cetera, et cetera, that won't be until December 31st. Uh, that way I can, I can build the book and do the final edits and things during the month of January and then get that off to Cooperative Press and get it out to you as soon as possible. So if you are interested, don't hesitate. You can email me at heather at craftlit.com and, uh, and let me know. And again, I'm, I'm, I am able to tell people, yes, this is on the right track, or ooh, have you thought about it doing something along these lines? But all of the final decisions are going to be made by our design board, and those decisions aren't going to be made until we have a more complete roster. We kind of, I, I know you probably have watched Nitty and, and Amy's very good at making sure there are some socks and some sweaters and some shawls and you kind of have to find that balance in order to make something work and, and we're in the same situation with the book. So if you, if you get a yes, that's the yes, keep going with it and we'll see what happens with, uh, with the design board. But I'm very excited about the things that have come in so far. They're really exciting, and I think a lot of fun, and I think you're, you're going to be very, very happy with Volume 2 as well. But enough of this knitting stuff. Let's talk about F. Scott Fitzgerald, shall we? Yes. Yes, we shall. I love F. Scott Fitzgerald, and I am willing to arm wrestle anyone who <laughs> disagrees with me. No, F. Scott Fitzgerald is such an interesting character in and of himself, 
and such an interesting writer. But before before we get to Scott, before we get to Zelda, before we get to Bernice, I I wanted to plant a seed in your mind. It's the same seed that I used to plant in my students' minds before we read Gatsby. Now, when, when I was teaching American literature in high school, we went from Huckleberry Finn to Gatsby, which, if you think about this, is an ungodly enormous leap in time. It's going from 1860, well, pre-1860, actually, up to the 1920s. And that's, that's too far. It's too far to jump kids. And it's very hard to kind of make sense of how you could move from, from Huck to Gatsby. Now, we, we live in a visual age, even though you're sitting here listening to a podcast in your ears. We live in a visual age, and students are quite adept at understanding very complicated visual subtleties and subtexts. They're in some ways, I think, more attuned to kind of old school political cartooning. They did a really, really good job in New York on the um, history tests because they'd have to look at political cartoons from, you know, the 1920s or the 1870s and analyze what was happening in them. And our kids were stunning at this. There were times when they saw stuff that I was really like, wow, okay, I didn't pick up on that at all. So I decided that probably the best way to move them along quickly, and I was able to accomplish this movement in one day because of doing it this way, I made a video compilation. And I started with uh, Scorsese's Age of Innocence. And I took the ballroom sequence because it included a bunch of different things. For one thing, it had a very kind of slow, languorous, beautiful introduction to a really wealthy house in New York on Central Park. And, you know, the camera moves through, I think it's one continuous shot too. And it's, if it's not continuous, it's pretty darn close to continuous. Uh, it moves through the guests in the room and it shows, you know, all of the men's dancing gloves laid out. And it shows you where the food is and it shows you the dresses and it shows you these fabulous portraits on the wall and just the money that's ripping off all of all of this, but it also shows you the social structure that you're dealing with. And it's very formal and very uptight. And I don't use that word casually. I mean, the women are corseted to within an inch of their life. And the men, some of them are corseted as well. And if they're not actually wearing male corsets, they are at least wearing three to six layers of clothing. And at least two of those layers was, they were wool. So this was not an easy time for anyone to feel comfortable, laid back, free-flowing, carefree. You know, I mean, life was very different. And, and at the end of this sequence, there was a wonderful moment where Daniel Day-Lewis says to Winona Ryder, I want to kiss you, but I can't. And nobody's there. Nobody's watching them. And yet he's still constrained. And of course, I mean, that's kind of the whole point of the, the story. This is the Evelyn Waugh book. And, and that's all well and good. So you get those visuals. And then I think I also included a dinner scene so that the kids could see <laughs> the many goblets on the table and the abundance of fruit at the center of the table. Just another 
symbol and indication of the wealth of these people and you know how many forks they had at their place settings and and that people dressed for dinner i mean the men were in tuxes and of course this isn't how everybody lived and we understood that and we talked about that as well but it did give you a very clear image of how constrained life was the next clip i showed them was from the movie legends of the fall and if you haven't seen this um, don't watch it with your children unless you've seen it first and I'll, you'll see why in just a second for legends of the fall i showed them a dinner scene at uh, anthony hopkins i thought that was an interesting casting choice anthony hopkins ranch in montana so it's rural it's quiet oh and by the way age of innocence they do show uh, it's a you know it's a painting of the house in central park and it's completely alone it's like fifth avenue and there are no other houses there it's just a big stone mansion in the middle of nowhere and it's hard to think of new york that way but but it was well now you're in middle of nowhere montana and it's very quiet it's very pastoral they they still dress for dinner the men are still in suits even though they are living in the middle of nowhere but the girl in the scene is not corseted any longer and the men while they are wearing layers they aren't so tight and they're not so rigid and and so you still see this kind of solemnity of carriage you know people are, are standing very straight and they're still wearing very nice clothes but it's not as restrictive anymore and this is into the 19 teens now right before world war one started and that dinner scene actually includes the discussion among the young men about whether they're going to go fight or not i jump cut on my little videotape that i made from that scene of this quiet pastoral articulate conversation to the mechanized hell of the front lines in world war one and i did that on purpose because i wanted it to be a shock for the students to see you go from life as everyone knew it at the time which was a quiet life it was not a machine centric world at all it was still agrarian and 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 suddenly these young men who had grown up under these circumstances were plunged head first into tanks and artillery and mustard gas and barbed wire and machine guns and trying to wrap your head around that kind of horror these days i think is very difficult and it was the only way i could think of to do it was to to really throw them off and you know i, I cleared this with my principal before i did it because i had a sneaking suspicion the first time i showed this that there would be tears and in fact there were you know there were there were kids who walked away from it saying i never understood and i thought well then i i did my job because now now once you see that shock that ungodly shock to the system that these men went through then you understand why the guys who came home drank and i'm not here to comment on alcoholism or anything like that all I want to make sure 
I get across to you is what that kind of horror did to people. Because without that information, Hemingway doesn't make sense, and Fitzgerald doesn't make sense, and quite a few of the the Roaring Twenties writers, they simply don't make sense. And with that piece of information, I think all of their writing becomes crystal clear where it came from, why they were writing what they were writing about, and and what what kind of fire they had in their belly that compelled them to write the things that they did. Now, Fitzgerald is a very interesting case. He, he, he was in the, I think he was in the army, but he never got shipped overseas. The war actually ended right as his battalion was slated to head over. He was, he was moved around a lot in the United States from camp to camp to camp. And that is how he met Zelda Sayer, who became his wife and who is an enigmatic study in and of herself. I, I have not studied her. She's somebody who I've always wanted to learn more about. She was a mess. She was kind of a fabulous mess. You know, she was, she was a force of nature and a, a walking time bomb and fascinating, 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 fascinating person in her own right. And I think they do actually quite a nice job in the Woody Allen film um, what the one that just came out, Midnight in Paris. I think when you see Zelda and Scott, they're, they're actually pretty close to what I've read about them. I thought they did a very nice job. Hemingway in Midnight in Paris, as far as I can tell, is just bloody dead on. And that was the other thing I wanted to tell you. If you want to get an objective, quote-unquote objective, view of the Fitzgeralds, read or listen to Hemingway's book, Movable Feast. These are his diaries that he went back and he re-edited in the early 60s and was still editing when he died, so it's kind of not completely edited. But especially if you think you don't like Hemingway, and I know there are plenty of people who don't like Hemingway, and I was one of them for a long time. If you think you don't like Hemingway, you really need to read or listen to Movable Feast. If you read it, it's kind of easier because you can kind of skip around and pick and choose. If you listen to it, I have a link to an audible recording that Hemingway's son and grandson worked on, and it's the unexpurgated version. It, they've actually put some things back that Hemingway's last wife had taken out, and it's a more complete picture of the Paris years. And one of the things that's so interesting about Hemingway is that he, kind of like uh, Kerouac during the 50s, Hemingway was a grown-up when he was very young, but he was married and he had a kid while everybody else around him was, you know, drinking and doing whatever unsavory things they could manage to do. And it's, it's very interesting reading Movable Feast, and I also read Paris Wife at the same time, which is a fictionalized account of Hemingway's first wife's version of the Paris years. And I've been reading and listening to those kind of at the same time. And it does really make you wonder if Hemingway hadn't lost his mooring uh, in the middle of that that Paris world where everybody else was living so large. Uh, and if he had stayed with his first wife, it does make you wonder if he would have wound up killing himself, ultimately. I mean, he, he had um, actual physiological uh, problems that um, were genetic in his family that certainly predisposed him to suicide. And that's, you know, something you can read more about. It's a fascinating group of people who wound up in Paris in the 20s. And Hemingway and Fitzgerald had a, a kind of an interesting relationship because I, I wouldn't say they were close, but they certainly respected each other and what each other was doing 
in writing, but their styles are nothing like each other. And in personality, they were really nothing like each other, which I found kind of interesting as I researched more because Hemingway was born in Chicago and Scott F. Scott Fitzgerald, Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald, was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, which actually turns out to matter in Bernice Bob's her hair because um, Bernice is from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, <laughs> which I think is adorable. And, uh, and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway both staged a lot of their stories or pieces of their stories or characters in their stories come from the upper Midwest. And so, you know, we think of them as Paris writers or we think of the uh, 20s writers as being very urban, very metropolitan, very New York, very Chicago, very Paris. And really, these were just, you know, nice guys from the Midwest, you know? It's, it's very hard to keep that in mind sometimes when you're reading what they said. But it all helps us make sense of the reasons that they wrote about the things that they wrote about. And Bernice Bob's her hair is no exception to that rule. Now, a couple of things that you need to know. Um, if you are not a native English speaker and you are listening to the podcast, please know that a lot of the language that F. Scott Fitzgerald uses descriptively is very old-fashioned and kind of archaic for us native English speakers as well, for we native speakers as well. For example, he uses the word pulchritude, which means beauty or loveliness, which is pretty old-fashioned. But again, he's looking for exactly the right word. The descriptive language that Fitzgerald engages in was carefully chosen and probably not any more spoken aloud than, than it is now, but it is literary and it is precise. It's, it's interesting, uh, Hemingway's, Hemingway's take on writing and simplicity of writing was to kind of winnow everything down to single syllable words, you know, just he, he was always trying for a true sentence, something that communicated exactly what it communicated, and nothing was left to question. It was pure, it was simple, it was true, it was straightforward. He used and a lot in order to, to do that. And that can be a really annoying feature of Hemingway, or that can be something you look at and that you're really impressed by, because he's very journalistic in his writing, but he is very precise. Now, Fitzgerald is a different kind of precision, but I, I argue it's the same, the same gut instinct was part of Fitzgerald's world. But Fitzgerald did not come from money. He had a childhood not unlike Mark Twain's. His, his father lost his job from time to time, and the family was always struggling for money, and Fitzgerald didn't know how to manage money either, and he was always struggling for money. And so I, I think you see in Fitzgerald someone who is trying very hard to enter the the upper class or the bourgeoisie or, you know, somehow position himself as a man of means because that was, for one thing, the only way he was going to get Zelda Sayer to marry him. But for another thing, I think he was always driven 
to be the image of himself that we actually think of when we think of him, you know, kind of this fabulous, handsome, dashing, blonde guy with a drink in his hand and a cigarette in the other and speaking in very erudite terms about some philosophical stance or another. And I, I think he, he wanted to be that guy. And so Fitzgerald's precision of language comes from his pursuit of the right word poetically, whereas Hemingway's pursuit of the right word was in finding its simplicity. Hemingway makes more sense when you look at what isn't being said, what his characters are avoiding talking about. And that's true to some extent in Fitzgerald as well, but Fitzgerald, I think, engages more easily in symbol and metaphor on a kind of a standard literary mode than, than Hemingway does. And so if, if you do not speak English as a native speaker, I don't want you to listen to this and say, oh, it's too hard, I don't understand these words. I think it's very much like Shakespeare. If you let it wash over you and you listen to the tone of the word, if that makes sense, you'll be able to tell, is it a positive word or a negative word? And you'll be able to walk away with, it's either a positive description or a negative description. And really, you don't need to know more than that. I'm not trying to dissuade you from looking up the words. I, I think it, Fitzgerald's actually an excellent place to learn vocabulary from because of his precision. But I don't want you to put, be off-put by his kind of aristocratic use of words. So that's one thing I wanted to make sure that I got across to you. Uh, the other is you may find that this story which is going to take us two episodes. Today we're going to have sections one through three, and then next episode will be sections four through six, and that'll be the end of it. You may, you may find that the themes sound awfully familiar to you, and that's because the themes should be awfully familiar to you. <laughs> if you watch television at all, um, children's, not children's, tween, tween-age television or teenage television, or if you saw the movie Mean Girls, written by Tina Fey, starring Lindsay Lohan, before everything went to went to blazes for Miss Lohan. Uh, if you have watched any of those things, and I highly recommend Mean Girls, by the way, you have seen this kind of rivalry story between girls. And people have famously commented off and on over the years about how uh, you know, no one is harder on another woman than another woman. We are a fairly judgmental sex. And there are lots of biological as well as sociological reasons for why we tend to do those things to each other. This is F. Scott Fitzgerald's commentary and vision of those interactions between two girls. We have Marjorie, who is blonde and very pretty and popular, and I think in some ways very much a Zelda character. And I'll, I'll tell you, there was a wonderful play that they did at UCLA my first semester there that some very talented people were in. And the play was called Feast of Youth by Andrew Campbell. And it was all about the section of time when Fitzgerald was stationed in Montgomery, Alabama and met Zelda Sayer. And she's the belle of the ball and everybody wants to dance with her and everybody wants to marry her and all of that. And I remember the girl who played Zelda 
genius. What was her name? Julie? Julie Pickering. She also did Romeo and Juliet with um, Michael Stuhlbarg. She was phenomenal. And every time uh, Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald, played by Joe Grimm, who was also fantastic, every time he would start to, you know, wax rhapsodic or talk deep talk about something, she would just look at him and say, yawn. And then, you know, turn around, flounce off and go dance with somebody. And I think that sums up the Marjorie type of girl quite well. I don't think Marjorie in this story uh, actually would have said it out loud, but she would probably be thinking it. And, and she, she knows how to position herself with young men. She knows how to, you know, live fast, have a good time, and leave a really good-looking corpse. And Bernice, who was also pretty, is not like that at all. And therefore, she is boring, quote-unquote. And the, the beginning of this story, in some ways, I think is not unlike that scene I talked about in Age of Innocence, where the camera is going slowly through all the rooms of the house towards the ballroom. In this case, we're going slowly through the town, being introduced to people here, and we're looking at somebody else over there. And it's kind of this slow introduction to where we are and who is there. And, you know, Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald does not waste his words or waste his moments. So we're introduced to people who will become important or at least be talked about more later. He's not giving you names like it's a list of begats in, in the Bible where, you know, all of the middle names you really don't ever hear from again. He's actually giving you the introduction to the people who are going to be players in the story. Now, the other thing that I think is kind of interesting is that he wrote this in 1920, which is very early in the kind of flapper movement. Now, I'm only assuming here, but I always gathered that they were called flappers because they were no longer wearing corsets. Is that just me? I have no idea. If, if anybody has their theory or factual information on why these girls were called flappers, please put it in the show notes. But that, that always made sense to me. But, you know, the, the 20s, we think of bobbed hair which means a, a short kind of boyish cut as being, or at least I always thought of bobbed hair as being kind of chic and very sleek, very airte kind of look going on. And that wasn't the case early on in this um, cross-section of culture, this youth youth culture. Um, the, the original bob cut that, women were being given, they were being given at a barbershop because there were really no salons yet for women because you just had long hair. The end. And, and so you'd go to the, bar the barbershop and they would just lop off your hair. And what you're left with is a very short haircut. And it was fairly unattractive. It wasn't until later, after Fitzgerald writes this story, that you started seeing the, seeing the the bobs that had, you know, the spit curls or the very stylish bangs, um, you know, very severe kind of a look. That all came much later. So when he's writing 
you will have to picture in your mind that most girls were wearing their hair long and they would then put it up in a, a, a fairly intricate bun or series of braids or some kind of coif at the base of their head, you know, back on their neck. And then, so they weren't the Gibson girl uh, pictures with the big, the big poofy hair and the, the knot of a, of a bun at the top of their head. They, they tended to wear it sleek and kind of pulled back, but they also had big hats that worked with their hair, either up or down. The cloche hat, those close-fitting hats that really only work well with a finger wave or a bob, those hats hadn't really come into style yet. They, they were there because there were bobs already, but, but that kind of chic look was not really mainstream yet. And in fact, the Saturday Evening Post, where this was originally printed in 1920, um, I will link to a page where you can see the pictures that accompanied the story. And it's much easier to see why this was such a radical move, this, this idea of bobbing your hair. I also found a great article, again, I think it's from 1920, or it's from early, an article from a magazine written by an actress who has ash blonde hair and lots of it and it was very long and she's talking about using hair as your your asset you know if you're if it's your beauty here's how to pull it off and don't for god's sake don't bob your hair and it's it's a real time capsule i'm i'm putting links to all of this in the show notes it's a real time capsule to see how women were talking about this radical step of cutting off all of their hair. Now, again, the, the women who were flappers, who were caught up in this kind of crazy time, this, again, post-war time, where there were lots of reasons for at least the men to want to forget a lot of things. Well, the girls had plenty to forget, too. Lots of girls lost their fiancés or lost their very young husbands, or lost their brothers, or lost their fathers. Now, none of that is discussed in Bernice Bob's or Hair. And in fact, all of the kids who you meet in the story seem like nice college kids or nice girls and boys. And you're really not looking at flapper culture. In fact, Marjorie is probably the wildest of the crew, and she's not wild by any modern standard to, to Fitzgerald's day, modern his day and certainly not by our modern standards. But you will hear some, at least one uh, amusing comment about uh, little women and the girls in the book being inane females. And that comes from Marjorie. And I love that because it, it does help you kind of classify where she's coming from. Oh, and I also wanted to make sure that you know the word stag when Fitzgerald talks about guys who are stags at the party, it means they did not come with a date. That's all. It doesn't mean anything more nefarious than that. So I have given you plenty too much information, and I'm now going to play you the audio of the first three sections of the short story, Bernice Bobs Her Hair, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Read for Craftlet by Shayla Norton in downtown San Francisco, summer of 2011. Text from ebooks 
www.adelaide.edu.au. Part 1 After dark on Saturday night, one could stand on the first tee of the golf course and see the country club windows as a yellow expanse over a very black and wavy ocean. The waves of this ocean, so to speak, were the heads of many curious caddies, a few of the more ingenious chauffeurs, the golf professional's deaf sister, and there were usually several stray, diffident waves who might have rolled inside had they so desired. This was the gallery. The balcony was inside. It consisted of the circle of wicker chairs that lined the wall of the combination club room and ballroom. At these Saturday night dances it was largely feminine, a great babel of middle-aged ladies with sharp eyes and icy hearts behind lorgnettes and large bosoms. The main function of the balcony was critical. It occasionally showed grudging admiration, but never approval, for it is well known among ladies over thirty-five that when the younger set dance in the summertime, it is with the very worst intentions in the world, and if they are not bombarded with stony eyes, stray couples will dance weird barbaric interludes in the corners, and the more popular, more dangerous girls will sometimes be kissed in the parked limousines of unsuspecting dowagers. But after all, this critical circle is not close enough to the stage to see the actors' faces and catch the subtler by-play. It can only frown and lean, ask questions and make satisfactory deductions from its set of postulates, such as the one which states that every young man with a large income leads the life of a hundred partridge. It never really appreciates the drama of the shifting, semi-cruel world of adolescence. No. Boxes, orchestra circle, principals, and chorus be represented by the medley of faces and voices that sway to the plaintive African rhythm of Dyer's dance orchestra. From 16-year-old Ordis Ormond, who has two more years at Hill School, to G. Reese Stoddard, over whose bureau at home hangs a Harvard Law diploma, from little Madeline Hogue, whose hair still feels strange and uncomfortable on top of her head, to Bessie McRae, who has been the life of the party a little too long, more than ten years, the medley is not only the center of the stage, but contains the only people capable of getting an unobstructed view of it. With a flourish and a bang, the music stops. The couples exchange artificial, effortless smiles, facetiously repeat, la-di-da-da-da-dum, and then the clatter of young feminine voices soars over the burst of clapping. A few disappointed stags caught in mid-floor as they had been about to cut in subsided listlessly back to the walls, because this was not like the riotous Christmas dances. These summer hops were considered just pleasantly warm and exciting, where even the younger marrieds rose and performed ancient waltzes and terrifying foxtrots to the tolerant amusement of their younger brothers and sisters. Warren McIntyre, who casually attended Yale, being one of the unfortunate stags, felt in his dinner coat pocket for a cigarette and strolled out under the wide, semi-dark veranda, where the couples were scattered at tables, filling the lantern-filled night with vague words and hazy laughter. He nodded here and there at the less absorbed, and as he passed each couple, some half-forgotten fragment of a story played in his mind, for it was not a large city, and everyone was who's who to everyone else's past. There, for example, were Jim Strain and Ethel Demarest, who had been privately engaged for three years— Everyone knew that as soon as Jim managed to hold a job for more than two months, she would marry him. Yet how bored they both looked, and how wearily Ethel regarded Jim sometimes, as if she wondered why she had trained the vines of her affection on such a wind-shaken poplar. Warren was nineteen, and rather pitying with those of his friends who hadn't gone east to college. But, like most boys, he bragged tremendously about the girls of his city when he was away from it. 
There was Genevieve Ormond, who regularly made the rounds of dances, house parties, and football games at Princeton, Yale, Williams, and Cornell. There was black-eyed Roberta Dillon, who was quite as famous to her own generation as Hiram Johnson or Ty Cobb. And, of course, there was Marjorie Harvey, who, besides having a fairy-like face and a dazzling, bewildering tongue, was already justly celebrated for having turned five cartwheels in succession during the last pump-and-slipper dance at New Haven. Warren, who had grown up across the street from Marjorie, had long been crazy about her. Sometimes she seemed to reciprocate his feeling with a faint gratitude, but she had tried him by her infallible test and informed him gravely that she did not love him. Her test was that when she was away from him she forgot him and had affairs with other boys. Warren found this discouraging, especially as Marjorie had been making little trips all summer, and for the first two or three days after each arrival home he saw great heaps of mail on the Harvey's hall table addressed to her in various masculine handwritings. To make matters worse, all during the month of August she had been visited by her cousin Bernice from Eau Claire, and it seemed impossible to see her alone. It was always necessary to hunt round and find someone to take care of Bernice. As August waned, this was becoming more and more difficult. Much as Warren worshipped Marjorie, he had to admit that Cousin Bernice was sort of dopeless. She was pretty, with dark hair and high color, but she was no fun on a party. Every Saturday night he danced a long, arduous duty dance with her to please Marjorie, but he had never been anything but bored in her company. Warren... A soft voice at his elbow broke in upon his thoughts, and he turned to see Marjorie, flushed and radiant as usual. She laid a hand on his shoulder, and a glow settled almost imperceptibly over him. Warren, she whispered, do something for me. Dance with Bernice. She's been stuck with little Otis Ormond for almost an hour. Warren's glow faded. Why, sure, he answered half-heartedly. You don't mind, do you? I'll see that you don't get stuck. All right. Marjorie smiled, that smile that was thanks enough. You're an angel, and I'm obliged loads. With a sigh, the angel glanced round the veranda, but Bernice and Otis were not in sight. He wandered back inside, and there in front of the women's dressing room, he found Otis in the center of a group of young men who were convulsed with laughter. Otis was brandishing a piece of timber he had picked up and discoursing volubly. She's gone in to fix her hair, he announced wildly. I'm waiting to dance another hour with her. Their laughter was renewed. Why don't some of you cut in, cried Otis resentfully. She likes more variety. Why, Otis, suggested a friend, you've just barely got used to her. Why the two-by-four, Otis, inquired Warren, smiling. The two-by-four? Oh, this. This is a club. When she comes out, I'll hit her on the head and knock her in again. Warren collapsed on the settee and howled with glee. Never mind, Otis, he articulated finally. I'm relieving you this time. Otis simulated a sudden fainting attack and handed the stick to Warren. If you need it, old man, he said hoarsely. No matter how beautiful or brilliant a girl may be, the reputation of not being frequently cut in on makes her position at a dance unfortunate. Perhaps the boys prefer her company to that of the butterflies with whom they dance a dozen times, but... Youth in this jazz-nourished generation is temperamentally restless, and the idea of fox-trotting more than one full fox-trot with the same girl is distasteful, not to say odious. When it comes to several dances and the intermissions between, she could be quite sure that a young man once relieved will never tread on her wayward toes again. Warren danced the next full dance with Bernice, and finally, thankful for the intermission, he led her to a table on the veranda. 
There was a moment's silence while she did unimpressive things with her fan. It's hotter here than in Eau Claire, she said. Warren stifled a sigh and nodded. It might be, for all he knew, or cared. He wondered idly whether she was a poor conversationalist because she got no attention, or got no attention because she was a poor conversationalist. You going to be here much longer? he asked, and then turned rather red. She might suspect his reasons for asking. Another week, she answered, and then stared at him as if to lunge at his next remark when it left his lips. Warren fidgeted. Then with a sudden charitable impulse, he decided to try part of his line on her. He turned and looked in her eyes. You've got an awfully kissable mouth, he began quietly. This was a remark that he sometimes made to girls at college proms when they were talking in just such half-dark as this. Bernice distinctly jumped. She turned an ungraceful red and became clumsy with her fan. No one had ever made such a remark to her before. Fresh? The word had slipped out before she realized it and she bit her lip. Too late, she decided to be amused and offered him a flustered smile. Warren was annoyed. Though not accustomed to have that remark taken seriously, still it usually provoked a laugh or a paragraph of sentimental banter. And he hated to be called fresh, except in a joking way. His charitable impulse died and he switched the topic. Jim Strain and Ethel Demarest sitting out as usual, he commented. This was more in Bernice's line, but a faint regret mingled with her relief as the subject changed. Men did not talk to her about kissable mouths, but she knew that they talked in some such way to other girls. Oh, yes, she said and laughed. I hear they've been mooning around for years without a red penny. Isn't it silly? Warren's disgust increased. Jim Strain was a close friend of his brother's, and anyway, he considered it bad form to sneer at people for not having money. But Bernice had had no intention of sneering. She was merely nervous. Part 2 When Marjorie and Bernice reached home at half after midnight, they said goodnight at the top of the stairs. Though cousins, they were not intimates. As a matter of fact, Marjorie had no female intimates. She considered girls stupid. Bernice, on the contrary, all through this parent-arranged visit, had rather longed to exchange those confidences flavored with giggles and tears that she considered an indispensable factor in all feminine intercourse. But in this respect she found Marjorie rather cold, felt somehow the same difficulty in talking to her that she had in talking to men. Marjorie never giggled, was never frightened, seldom embarrassed, and in fact had very few of the qualities which Bernice considered appropriately and blessedly feminine. As Bernice busied herself with toothbrush and paste this night, she wondered for the hundredth time why she never had any attention when she was away from home. That her family were the wealthiest in Eau Claire, that her mother entertained tremendously, gave little dinners for her daughter before all dances, and bought her a car of her own to drive round in, never occurred to her as factors in her hometown social success. Like most girls, she had been brought up on the warm milk prepared by Annie Fellows Johnston and on novels in which the female was beloved because of certain mysterious womanly qualities, always mentioned but never displayed. Bernice felt a vague pain that she was not at present engaged in being popular. She did not know that had it not been for Marjorie's campaigning, she would have danced the entire evening with one man, but she knew that even in Eau Claire other girls with less position and less pulchritude were given a much bigger rush. She attributed this to something subtly unscrupulous in those girls. It had never worried her, and if it had, her mother would have assured her that the other girls cheapened themselves and that men really respected girls like Bernice. 
She turned out the light in her bathroom, and on impulse decided to go in and chat for a moment with her Aunt Josephine, whose light was still on. Her soft slippers bore her noiselessly down the carpeted hall, but hearing voices inside she stopped near the partly open door. Then she caught her own name, and without any definite intention of eavesdropping, lingered, and the thread of the conversation going on inside pierced her consciousness sharply as if it had been drawn through with a needle. She's absolutely hopeless, it was Marjorie's voice. Oh, I know what you're going to say. So many people have told you how pretty and sweet she is, and how she can cook. What of it? She has a bum time. Men don't like her. What's a little cheap popularity? Mrs. Harvey sounded annoyed. It's everything when you're eighteen, said Marjorie emphatically. I've done my best. I've been polite, and I've made men dance with her, but they just won't stand being bored. When I think of that gorgeous coloring wasted on such a ninny, and think what Bertha Carey could do with it. Oh! There's no courtesy these days. Mrs. Harvey's voice implied that modern situations were too much for her. When she was a girl, all young ladies who belonged to nice families had glorious times. Well, said Marjorie, no girl can permanently bolster up a lame duck visitor, because these days it's every girl for herself. I've even tried to drop hints about clothes and things, and she's been furious, giving me the funniest looks. She's sensitive enough to know she's not getting away with much, but I'll bet she consoles herself by thinking that she's very virtuous, and that I'm too gay and fickle, and will come to a bad end. All unpopular girls think that way. Sour grapes. Sarah Hopkins refers to Genevieve and Roberta and me as gardenia girls. I'll bet she'd give ten years of her life and her European education to be a gardenia girl and have three or four men in love with her and be cut in on every few feet at dances. It seems to me, interrupted Mrs. Harvey rather wearily, that you ought to be able to do something for Bernice. I know she's not very vivacious. Marjorie groaned. Vivacious? Good grief! I've never heard her say anything to a boy except that it's hot, the floor is crowded, or that she's going to school in New York next year. Sometimes she asks them what kind of car they have, and tells them the kind she has. Thrilling! There was a short silence, then Mrs. Harvey took up her refrain. All I know is that other girls not half so sweet and attractive get partners. Martha Carey, for instance, is stout and loud, and her mother is distinctly common. Roberta Dillon is so thin this year that she looks as though Arizona were the place for her. She's dancing herself to death. But mother, objected Marjorie impatiently, Martha is cheerful and awfully witty and an awfully slick girl, and Roberta's a marvelous dancer. She's been popular for ages. Mrs. Harvey yawned. I think it's that crazy Indian blood in Bernice, continued Marjorie. Maybe she's a reversion to type. Indian men all just sat round and never said anything. Go to bed, you silly child, laughed Mrs. Harvey. I wouldn't have told you that if I thought you were going to remember it. And I think most of your ideas are perfectly idiotic, she finished sleepily. There was another silence while Marjorie considered whether or not convincing her mother was worth the trouble. People over forty can seldom be permanently convinced of anything. 
At eighteen our convictions are hills from which we look. At forty-five they are caves in which we hide. Having decided this, Marjorie said good-night. When she came out into the hall, it was quite empty. Part Three While Marjorie was breakfasting late next day, Bernice came into the room with a rather formal good morning, sat down opposite, stared intently over, and slightly moistened her lips. "'What's on your mind?' inquired Marjorie, rather puzzled. Bernice paused before she threw her hand grenade. "'I heard what you said about me to your mother last night.' Marjorie was startled, but she showed only a faintly heightened color, and her voice was quite even when she spoke. "'Where were you?' "'In the hall. I didn't mean to listen. At first. After an involuntary look of contempt, Marjorie dropped her eyes and became very interested in balancing a stray cornflake on her finger. "'I guess I'd better go back to Eau Claire, if I'm such a nuisance.' Bernice's lower lip was trembling violently, and she continued on a wavering note. "'I've tried to be nice, and, and I've been first neglected and then insulted. No one ever visited me and got such treatment.' Margie was silent. "'But I'm in the way, I see. I'm a drag on you. Your friends don't like me.' She paused and then remembered another one of her grievances. Of course I was furious last week when you tried to hint to me that the dress was unbecoming. Don't you think I know how to dress myself? No, murmured less than half aloud. What? I didn't hint anything, said Marjorie succinctly. I said, as I remember, that it was better to wear a becoming dress three times straight than to alternate it with two frights. Do you think that was a very nice thing to say? I wasn't trying to be nice. Then, after a pause, "'When do you want to go?' Bernice drew in her breath sharply. "'Oh!' It was a little half-cry. Marjorie looked up in surprise. "'Didn't you say you were going?' "'Yes, but—' "'Oh, you were only bluffing!' They stared at each other across the breakfast table for a moment. Misty waves were passing before Bernice's eyes, while Marjorie's face wore the rather hard expression that she used when slightly intoxicated undergraduates were making love to her. "'So you were bluffing,' she repeated as if it were what she might have expected. Bernice admitted it by bursting into tears. Marjorie's eyes showed boredom. "'You're my cousin,' sobbed Bernice. "'I'm visiting you.' I will to stay a month, and if I go home, my mother will know, and she'll wonder. Marjorie waited until the shower of broken words collapsed into little sniffles. I'll give you my month's allowance, she said coldly, and you can spend this week anywhere you want. There's a very nice hotel. Bernice's sobs rose to a flute note, and rising of a sudden, she fled from the room. An hour later, while Marjorie was in the library, absorbed in composing one of those noncommittal, marvelously elusive letters that only a young girl can write, Bernice reappeared, very red-eyed, and consciously calm. She cast no glance at Marjorie, but took a book at random from the shelf and sat down as if to read. Marjorie seemed absorbed in her letter and continued writing. When the clock showed noon, Bernice closed her book with a snap. "'I suppose I'd better get my railroad ticket.' This was not the beginning of the speech she had rehearsed upstairs, but as Marjorie was not getting her cues, it wasn't urging her to be reasonable, it's a mistake. 
It was the best opening she could muster. Just wait till I finish this letter, said Marjorie without looking round. I want to get it off in the next mail. After another minute, during which her pen scratched busily, she turned round and relaxed with an air of, At your service. Again, Bernice had to speak. Do you want me to go home? Well, said Marjorie, considering, I suppose if you're not having a good time, you'd better go. No use being miserable. Don't you think common kindness? Oh, please don't quote little women, cried Marjorie impatiently. That's out of style. You think so? Heavens, yes. What modern girl could live like those inane females? They were the models for our mothers. Marjorie laughed. Yes, they were. Not. Besides, our mothers were all very well in their way, but they know very little about their daughters' problems. Bernice drew herself up. Please don't talk about my mother. Marjorie laughed. I don't think I mentioned her. Bernice felt that she was being led away from her subject. Do you think you've treated me very well? I have done my best. You're rather hard material to work with. The lids of Bernice's eyes reddened. I think you're hard and selfish, and you have an effeminate quality in you. Oh, my Lord, cried Marjorie in desperation. You little nut. Girls like you are responsible for all the tiresome, colorless marriages, all those ghastly inefficiencies that pass as feminine qualities. What a blow it must be when a man with imagination marries the beautiful bundle of clothes that he's been building ideals around and finds that she's just a weak, whining, cowardly mass of affectations. Bernice's mouth had slipped half open. The womanly woman, continued Marjorie. Her whole early life is occupied in whining criticisms of girls like me who really do have a good time. Bernice's jaw descended farther as Marjorie's voice rose. There's some excuse for an ugly girl whining. If I'd been irretrievably ugly, I'd never have forgiven my parents for bringing me into the world. But you're starting life without any handicap. Marjorie's little fist clenched. If you expect me to weep with you, you'll be disappointed. Go or stay, just as you like. And picking up her letters, she left the room. Bernice claimed a headache and failed to appear at luncheon. They had a matinee date for the afternoon, but the headache persisting, Marjorie made an explanation to a not very downcast boy. But when she returns late in the afternoon, she found Bernice with a strangely set face waiting for her in her bedroom. I've decided, said Bernice without preliminaries, that maybe you're right about things. Possibly not. But if you'll tell me why your friends aren't... aren't interested in me... I'll see if I can do what you want me to. Marjorie was at the mirror, shaking down her hair. Do you mean it? Yes. Without reservations? Will you do exactly what I say? Well, I... Well, nothing. Will you do exactly as I say? If they're sensible things? They're not. You're no case for sensible things. Are you going to make... To recommend? Yes, everything. If I tell you to take boxing lessons, you'll have to do it. Write home and tell your mother you're going to stay another two weeks. If you'll tell me. All right. I'll just give you a few examples now. First, 
You have no ease of manner. Why? Because you're never sure about your personal appearance. When a girl feels that she's perfectly groomed and dressed, she can forget that part of her. That's charm. The more parts of yourself you can afford to forget, the more charm you have. Don't I look all right? No. For instance, you never take care of your eyebrows. They're black and lustrous, but by leaving them straggly, they're a blemish. They'd be beautiful if you take care of them in one-tenth the time you take doing nothing. You're going to brush them so they'll grow straight. Bernice raised the brows in question. Do you mean to say that men notice eyebrows? Yes, subconsciously. And when you go home, you ought to have your teeth straightened a little. It's almost imperceptible, still. But I thought, interrupted Bernice in bewilderment, that you despise little dainty feminine things like that. I hate dainty minds, answered Marjorie, but a girl has to be dainty in person. If she looks like a million dollars, she can talk about Russia, ping pong, or the League of Nations and get away with it. What else? Oh, I'm just beginning. There's your dancing. Don't I dance all right? No, you don't. You lean on a man, yes, you do, ever so slightly. I noticed it when we were dancing together yesterday. And you dance standing up straight instead of bending over a little. Probably some old lady on the sideline once told you that you look so dignified that way. But except with a very small girl, it's much harder on the man. And he's the one that counts. Go on. Bernice's brain was reeling. Well, you've got to learn to be nice to men who are sad birds. You look as if you'd been insulted whenever you're thrown in with any except the most popular boys. Why, Bernice, I'm cut in on every few feet, and who does most of it? Why, those very sad birds. No girl can afford to neglect them. They're the big part of any crowd. Young boys too shy to talk are the very best conversational practice. Clumsy boys are the very best dancing practice. If you can follow them and yet look graceful, you can follow a baby tank across a barbed wire skyscraper. Bernice sighed profoundly, but Marjorie was not through. If you go to a dance and really amuse, say, three sad birds that dance with you, if you talk so well to them that they forget they're stuck with you, you've done something. They'll come back next time, and gradually so many sad birds will dance with you that the attractive boys will see that there's no danger of being stuck, then they'll dance with you. Yes, agreed Bernice faintly. I think I begin to see. And finally, concluded Marjorie, poison charm will just come. You'll wake up some morning knowing you've attained it, and men will know it too. Bernice rose. It's been awfully kind of you, but nobody's ever talked to me like this before, and I feel sort of startled. Marjorie made no answer, but gazed pensively at her own image in the mirror. You're a peach to help me, continued Bernice. Still, Marjorie did not answer, and Bernice thought she had seemed too grateful. I know you don't like sentiment, she said timidly. Marjorie turned to her quickly. Oh, I wasn't thinking about that. I was considering whether we hadn't better bob your hair. Bernice collapsed backward upon the bed. Did you catch the comment about the Indian blood in Bernice, causing her no end of trouble? Yes, it was a different time. I thought it was also just 
interesting that Fitzgerald threw that in at all, you know, because that would have been kind of scandalous and something one wouldn't speak about, which also cracks me up because my great, great, great grandmother on my dad's side was Cherokee. And of course, I was raised knowing all about, you know, marry the Cherokee, which is what it actually said on the marriage certificate. And it was a point of pride, which just goes to show that, thank God, times have changed. Don't forget, if you donate to the show during the month of August 2011, you will be put into a drawing for your own copy of the audiobook, The Secret Language of Knitters, by Mary Beth Temple, read by the author, coming to you from Knitting Out Loud. And on that note, I leave you. I hope you have a great week. I will be back next week with more Bernice fun for you. Have a great one. Talk to you later. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, and Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. And what would Madame Defarge knit? A new book of knit and crochet patterns coming to you from the Craftlet family. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlet supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlet.com. Craftlet can also be accessed by its own Android and iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn.